Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. You know of the Battle of Fredericksburg as the scene of futile carnage where Burnside's brave soldiers tried again and again to dislodge Lee's army from Murray's Heights. But to Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Madison, the battle is the nexus of five American lives that reflect deeper meanings in the Civil War. We'll talk about those five Americans, from Walt Whitman to Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. to the gallant John Pelham, and the book called A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. And we'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, also in Greenville, because it's still the pandemic season. This is the second week of April 2021, and we're still not back in class yet. But uh, hopefully we'll be in the fall and we'll be doing the show from there. And even when that happens, I will still not be speaking on behalf of ECU or anybody else, nor will my guests be speaking on behalf of anyone but himself tonight, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. It is a beautiful time of year. April brings out the best in this part of eastern North Carolina. Many things are in bloom. And we are rapidly approaching the end of the the academic year. Just finished a uh, graduate uh, MA thesis defense for one of my advisees this past week, which went extremely well, I'm happy to say. 
it also helped me realize that I'm I'm too hard on my graduate students. The, this particular student did an admirable job and met every expectation. But I've had a number of students over the last few years who didn't finish, who dropped out or took a leave of absence or whatever, or switched to a different advisor. And it occurs to me that I, I am making the same demands on these students that I tend to make on myself. I'm never satisfied with my own writing, so how can I possibly be satisfied with theirs? And of course, that's not fair to them and uh, doesn't I'm not doing my job well if I'm not getting them through the program, so I need to fix that. Uh, but it was interesting to see, have the experience of someone who really did write well that made me think, oh, that's maybe I, I need to stop being uh, the way I've been in that. Where I don't need to stop being the way I've been is in having the opportunity to talk with you once a week for an hour and with the people uh, who show up here on Civil War Talk Radio. It is always a treat to get to hang out with them for an hour. Next week, our guest will be Lauren Thompson, whose book is just out called Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. On the 28th of April, Jim Oakes returns to the show with a book about Abraham Lincoln and the anti-slavery constitution. We'll be entering a, a contemporary debate when we talk with him about that. On the 5th of May, Colonel Jeffrey McCausland and Colonel Thomas Vosler, both retired, will be here to talk about the Battle of Gettysburg and its lessons for leaders in the 21st century. On the 12th of May, Barbara Tomlin and her book, Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy, will be our guest. On the following week, I had hoped to not be here because we would be doing a battlefield tour that week. I've been talking about those with you over the last few weeks. I found out, unfortunately, this week that Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours is not going to run their spring Civil War or European tours. Uh, it's still not really safe to travel in groups, and so they are not going to be doing those. Hopefully, we'll be back in the fall. Uh Relative to that, uh, what I have to say next is a a paid announcement. This is something new on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, I haven't traditionally accepted paid announcements in the past, but have always been theoretically theoretically willing to do so. If you have something of interest to Civil War Talk Radio listeners, uh, not if you're selling vaping products or black tar heroin or or even something innocuous like garden tools, it's not relevant to the show, not interested in that. But if it has to do with what we do on the show, then yes. So the following, a paid commercial message, is for Civil War trails. If I'll read it directly. If you're inspired by what you're hearing today, go experience the sites firsthand. Stand in their footsteps. Civil War Trails is the world's largest open-air museum with more than 1,300 sites across six states. Visit www.civilwartrails.org to request a brochure or use the Civil War Trails digital map to plan your own campaign, follow Civil War Trails, and create some history of your own. End of message. The I am fascinated by how talk radio and other podcasts work where they seamlessly have the, the person talking goes from 
uh, you know, sports talk radio discussing the umpire's error in the Phillies-Braves game that was the most flagrant miscarriage of justice since uh, the Lochner decision, and uh, then instantly into why you should buy some patent medicine to increase your testosterone. And apparently the audience is supposed to understand that the speaker is paid to say one. Well, I guess they're paid to say both, but believes one and not the other. Actually, they probably don't believe either. I'm not really sure. Maybe it's like pro wrestling where everybody knows everything is fake, but you still enjoy it. Anyway, uh, here on this show, what I'm saying is what I really think. It always has been. And if there is a paid ad, it will only be for something that I also really think. Civil War Trails is an example. If you've seen those markers around, we have two of them here in Greenville dealing with Potter's Raid in 1863. They're just little roadside markers you pull off the road read them find out what's going on there and there are 1300 of them all over the east coast it's it's an amazing project it forms a giant outdoor museum so i do strongly urge you to check out civil war trails uh, especially since we can't go on a group tour this spring uh, make your own tour and take civil war trails guide with you if you can't do that, listen to Civil War Talk Radio and uh, go to Civil War Tra- Civil War, what do we call it? Uh, Civil War TR. Uh, now that's how you get to uh, to donate to the show. Uh, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and there you find the Civil War Talk Radio website. Also, Impediments of War is the name of the Facebook page. You can find out who's going to be on the show next. You can donate to the show through the PayPal button. And uh, it's tax day tomorrow. Don't deduct your donations to the show because they're just for me. They're not tax deductible. A person who would know that would be a person with a law degree. And we happen to have one as our guest tonight. Uh, Joining us is John Madison, who's a professor of English at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for his book, Eden's Outcasts, the story of Louisa May Alcott and her father. Uh, Professor Madison, welcome to the show. Are you there? Uh, Jerry, I certainly am. It's a delight to be with you. Uh, Before we get going, I I would just love to send a shout out to the folks at East Carolina. I uh, worked for a year for a federal judge in Elizabeth City, so uh, trekking back and forth between Raleigh and Elizabeth City, I got to know some Greenville people, and uh, what a wonderful place you find yourself in in the world. Well, thank you. It's it's far from my uh, growing up grounds in Michigan, but I've come to really appreciate it, and it uh, it's very beautiful this time of year, I will say. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you had the opportunity to experience the extraordinarily flat drive between uh, between uh, <laughs> Elizabeth City and Raleigh. I don't think it varies five feet in elevation the whole way. Uh, yeah, but, I don't uh, think it does. It's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So... Pretty, uh, yeah. Let me ask, in addition to East Carolina uh, that we have in common, you wrote, uh, you did a history undergraduate degree, wrote a senior thesis, uh, but then went to law school, uh, Harvard Law School, uh, and then uh, then from there, in, uh, practice law, as you, as you just told us, uh, but then went to uh, get a PhD in English, uh, I'm always curious about that. I 
did the law school thing, then a PhD in history, what uh-huh. people question my sanity. Why did I leave a, a decent career to do this? Uh, why did you do it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I have reasons to share with you as long as my arm. Uh, without uh, <laughs> making any uh, any personal comments, I think that the couple of things that mattered to me most uh, were getting into a profession where I enjoyed some moral autonomy. Uh, as you know, one of the things that happens to you when, a, when you're a lawyer is that uh, you tend to acquire the morality of your client uh, in, a, in a particular case. And, uh, and that was... Uh, that, that really didn't work for me terribly well. Uh, but aside from that, uh, I just wanted very much to, uh, to read good books and talk about them with smart young people. So, uh, so that's, the, that's the very brief um, uh, you know, description of, of how I got to, uh, to where I am. Uh, the other thing I might tell you is that um, uh, just before I started contemplating making that uh, shift in career, uh, I saw the Kevin Costner movie Field of Dreams, which, as you know, is a baseball film, but it's more than that. It's about listening to the quiet voices within you and following them uh, at, at whatever cost. And uh, after I saw that movie, I asked myself, well, am I really building my ball field? Uh, the answer was no. And so the mm-hmm. second question was, well, if I'm not doing it now, when am I going to do it? And the answer was, you better do it soon. So that's when I, I uh, started studying for the GREs at night and uh, setting my sights on, uh, on academia. I, I, boy, I, I hear that 100%. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure you occasionally talk with lawyers who say, oh, you know, boy, I'd love to uh, you know, teach some English or teach some history when I retire. Uh, I, I don't know many people in academia who say, well, yeah, this is okay, but I'd really like to be a, a lawyer, and I, when I retire, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you just don't hear that. <laughs> No, no, you sure don't. You know, I kept my uh, my bar memberships current for uh, for quite a while, uh, mm-hmm. just in case. And I, I think I still am uh, uh, current in North Carolina, oddly enough. But huh. uh, but but no, you're absolutely right that uh, that once I I made the switch, uh, I uh, have not had too many rueful moments of uh, of, of regret. Uh, um, I'm very very grateful, in fact, for the the path that I've been on. Uh, since uh, since 1991 now. Now, since you you won uh, the Pulitzer Prize for your book about Louisa May Alcott and her father, uh, mm-hmm. you are a professor of English, but you started, your undergraduate degree was history, and this book uh, that we're talking yeah. about tonight, A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War mm-hmm. Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation, is... Uh, I guess it's sort of a combination of the two. Uh, is that safe to say? Uh, I think that is fair to say. And uh, during your introductory remarks, I was actually delighted to hear that uh, you're bringing Jim Oaks onto the program in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Because as it turns out, you may not know this, but he was actually my undergraduate thesis advisor. And he and I are actually preparing to do a, uh, uh, a joint event uh, tomorrow evening uh, with the folks in Fredericksburg. So, uh, so anyway, it's been kind of fun to, uh, for, you know, for us to uh, get each other back into our lives. And uh, he obviously has done brilliantly with his career. So it's, uh, it's really a delight. And I really encourage your listeners to, to come back in a couple weeks because the Lincoln book he's written really is special. 
I'm looking forward to reading it. He's been on the show uh, at yeah. least twice, uh, and and yeah. we used to see each other every year at the uh, the Lincoln Study Center in, in uh, at Knox College, uh, yeah. which uh, is, is we haven't been able to do for the last couple of years, obviously. But please give him my best when you see him, uh, and uh, and to all the staff at, at Fredericksburg as well. Uh, just a, a great place. Yeah, I absolutely will. So your question, uh, I guess, was actually about the books being a combination of yes. my interest in literature and, and my interest in Civil War history. Uh, and that is very true. Um, you know, uh, you know, people who pick the book up will notice pretty quickly that two out of the five uh, people I write about uh, you know, you know, either you know, were in the midst of outstanding literary careers or were on their way to one. And I'm talking about uh, Walt Whitman and Louisa May Alcott, uh, who have in common, of course, the fact that they both served uh, as uh, as nurses in the uh, Union Army hospitals in and around Washington. She formally, and he on a on a much more catch as catch can basis. Um, but uh, this book was wonderful for me because it was an opportunity uh, for me to uh, revisit a, uh, an interest of very long standing in the Civil War. I became a Civil War enthusiast probably at the age of 12 or 13. Uh, but to combine that with, uh, with some of my uh, more recent uh, pursuits. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this is the way I really prefer to study history uh, as a, uh, uh, you know, as, you know, a compendium of, of events and, and great individuals, but also of ideas and cultural movements. And uh, the real thrust of the book, as, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. is all about not how Fredericksburg alters the path of the Civil War, per se, but how it changes the lives of Whitman and Alcott and a few other figures uh, in a way that does resonate through and subtly alter uh, American culture between then and now. I, let me say this to the audience, to everyone listening before we go further. In, in the nature of a spoiler alert, uh, one of the things sure. that I really enjoyed about this book was how it unfolded uh, so that a question I was going to ask you, John, at the start was, you know, what was the criteria for choosing these five people? And as I'm reading it, I'm still asking myself that question. And then the answer mm-hmm fairly explodes by the time you get to the end and all everything comes together and you see that's what he's getting and I see how these uh, form a beautiful whole it's it just a, a, a wonderful reading experience and so listeners go out and buy this book uh, stop listening to the podcast go out and buy the book read it and then come back and listen to the rest of our talk because we're going to talk about things that were really fun to discover as you're turning the pages and and i don't you know there'll be spoilers um i I don't see how we can get around talking about them uh so that's my advice to listeners we're already to our first break we'll take a short break here we'll come back in just a moment talk more with our guest tonight john madison he is the author of a worse place than hell how the civil war battle of fredericksburg changed a nation i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning into the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with John Madison, author of A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. This is a... uh, remarkable book that looks at five notable Americans who are influenced by the Battle of Fredericksburg. They're not major players in the battle. It's not a battle book. This is not George Rabel's book uh, or, or uh, uh, Palfrey's book or, or it, anyone else's. It's, it's, not, uh, about, it's not a tactical analysis. There's a little bit of that in there, but that's not what we're looking at. Uh, John, the people you write about, uh, we'll lay them out there. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., Walt Whitman, Arthur Fuller, the gallant John Pelham, and Louisa May Alcott. Uh, of those five, I would guess listeners have heard uh, of four. If you're talking to a general audience, they might know, not know the artillerist Pelham. But if you're listening to Civil War Talk Radio, you've heard of him. Uh but Arthur Fuller, let, let me just start with that. Who Arthur Fuller is not a name that people recognize. Uh, who was he, and why did you choose to write about him? Okay. Well, um, yeah, there are various answers to the question of why mm-hmm. I chose him to write about. Um, probably the most uh, utilitarian one uh, is that uh, I wrote a book about his sister, um, uh, Margaret Fuller, uh, who, um, as you're looking listeners might well know, uh, was a leading intellectual in the first half of the of, of 19th century America, an early kind of proto-feminist uh, who, uh, who dies tragically in a shipwreck in 1850. Uh, and so it was through her that I became aware of Arthur Fuller. And uh, I, it must have been when I was working on the Margaret Fuller book that I uh, rooted around a little bit in the family papers at Bowdoin Library at, uh, at Harvard and, uh, and discovered that uh, her younger brother, Arthur, 
uh, was a chaplain in the Army of the Potomac, specifically in the uh, Regiment of the 16th Massachusetts Infantry. And, uh, and he has um, a, a sort of a truncated story arc in the Civil War, because he is in fact killed at, uh, at Fredericksburg. Uh, but he holds my interest because he is in, you know, in no way the typical military hero. Now, I've got, of course, in the book, John Pelham, who is mm-hmm. young and gallant and handsome and dashing and, and has this audacious stand on uh, the, you know, the day of the major fighting at Fredericksburg, where he holds off an entire wing of Burnside's army with a single cannon. And that's kind of the, the, the idea of the romantic hero that one gets from Fredericksburg. But Arthur Fuller uh, is uh, on kind of a different spectrum. Uh, he, When he's uh, 10 years old, when he's a boy, uh, he is um, the victim of an accident that costs him an eye. Uh, his mother coddles him thereafter. Uh, he grows up somewhat frail and unsure of himself. Uh, he becomes a, a Unitarian minister uh, and has some success in that line of work. Uh, but, uh, but it's kind of my thesis that, um, that prior to the Civil War, as he's you know, reaching his 40th birthday, he's looking back on his life and feeling that he is not proven himself, uh, and that he hasn't, has not lived up to the family name, that he has no really great accomplishments uh, that, that he can really point to. And so he becomes a chaplain uh, and, uh, and is you know, revered and loved by his regiment, but then contracts malaria and is sent home um, you know, near death. And, uh, and so this is the last person that you would expect uh, to, um, you know, to pick up a rifle and to, uh, to uh, you know, essentially march into Fredericksburg, not with his own regiment, because they would have sent him back, uh, but with another regiment. He borrows a, an officer's coat and, uh, and you know, proclaiming, quote, I must do something for my country, unquote, uh, makes his stand um, on the first day of fighting in Fredericksburg. And, uh, and it does not end well. Um, but he's an interesting figure. He's kind of the everyman in the book. He, as you say, he's not a, a particularly famous person, although there are poems written about him after, uh, after he is gunned down. Um, but he allows me to explore um, a side of courage that people don't necessarily think about, and that's the courage of the, of the common man, uh, the person who uh, you know, has to rise a great deal to rise to an occasion, and yet somehow finds a way of doing it. So that's a little bit of an explanation of why Arthur Fuller is in the book. The, the point about him feeling that he hadn't done anything yet uh, that, and he, that he's in a famous family, his, his sister is more famous than he is, uh, is, is another thing, is, is a thread that runs through the, the five individuals you look at. Uh, you start mm-hmm. the book with Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and end with him, and the fact that we know him as Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. implies that there's an Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., and their relationship is a big part of of ultimately what what makes Holmes' story so interesting. Go ahead. No, just go ahead. Talk about that. um, Yeah, I was was going to say very much so. Uh, Of course, one of the most shop-worn cliches of the Civil War is that it pitted brother against brother, and that's obviously Mm -hmm. true. 
but um, it's important to recognize, and as you say, this is a theme that my book returns to uh, through a number of the figures, uh, is that it's also a time of great tension between generations, of fathers, uh, in a sense, against children. And uh, you're right, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. grows up in the shadow of a very illustrious father, who is a renowned poet, who has uh, you know, written successful novels, but is also a member of the Harvard University uh, medical faculty. He's a press professor of anatomy who's done important work on childbed fever and has saved the lives of many new mothers because of his understandings of how infection works. And, uh, and so he is an enormously huge deal. And, and for many years to come after the Civil War, is still going to be the Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, but Oliver Jr., whom I refer to in the book as Wendell, is ambitious, he's restless, and he, like many sons, uh, doesn't necessarily believe that his father is everything that he's cracked up to be. And so we have reported conversations of Holmes Sr. talking to another famous uh, senior, uh, that being Henry James Sr., father of the novelist, uh, asking him, well, why is it that our sons seem to so naturally despise us? So there's this tremendous contentiousness in uh, in the Holmes family and this struggle for ascendancy um, that, uh, that goes on throughout Wendell's childhood but continues very intensely into the war period. And I, I'll be happy to talk more about that if you'd like. Well, the, the the generational struggle, I guess one thing that made it so evocative is, uh, again, echoes in contemporary American society that the greatest generation, the, the, followed by the baby boomers, and then the uh, uh, young people today who can't afford houses and, and aren't living the same dream, uh, it, it certainly uh, it, it strikes a chord, as do many of the themes in this book. The uh, uh, at one point I was trying to write down a single word about each of the five individuals to mm. see if I was following the thread, and uh, yeah. at that point in the book, the word I wrote about Holmes was duty, and yeah. it does seem to me that 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 duty to his father is just one of many duties that that really shapes what he decides he has to do. Yeah, that's very well seen, Jerry. Uh, duty, for me, also lies at the heart of the Holmes story, because as you've um, suggested, uh, Wendell feels a series of duties. He feels a duty to please his father. He feels a duty to do everything that he can to destroy safe slavery and preserve the Union. Uh, and then, of course, there's the duty that he encounters as, uh, as a military officer. And he is one of those who uh, you know, signs on at the beginning of the war for three years, little suspecting that the war is going to last anywhere near that length of time, uh, and also little suspecting the kind of torment that he's going to be passing through. Uh, Wendell is uh, seriously wounded at three different battles, Balls Bluff, Antietam, and, uh, and Second Fredericksburg, uh, and, uh, and watches um, helplessly as almost every single one of uh, his good friends from Harvard who go into the same regiment with him, the 20th Massachusetts, are either killed or horribly maimed. And, uh, and so he you know, starts to wonder, you know, what are the limits of duty? You know, what is it finally that a person owes to society? 
And he understands that, you know, in the military, duty has to be regarded as practically absolute. Uh, and yet, at the same time, um, in, you know, about you know a year and a half after after uh, Fredericksburg, uh, he writes home and tells his father, "Look, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, if I stay in the army, I am either going to die or literally go crazy." And he has a real dust up with his father, who has become a, a very staunch armchair patriot and in, in the safety of uh, of, uh, of you know uh, hub of the universe, Boston, uh, and and so it's. Um, it's incumbent on Wendell um, to think very hard about what duty means. And as he starts to cut his teeth as a legal scholar, the question of duty becomes utterly central to his uh, nation theories of law, which he then announces in his immortal book uh, from 1881, The Common Law, uh, in which he explains the limits of duty as it pertains to personal injury law, and in which he also says that uh, the the story of law is not one of logic but of experience, and he certainly had experience uh, to burn after the uh, the calamity of the Civil War. The the fact that you point out when he's wounded at Antietam, for example, the bullet passes through his neck, and yeah. you know an inch either way, and he's he's dead. And he yeah. comes to you know conclude that what was the rationality in that? Uh, what, what was the justice or the, the the great eternal plan in that? This this is just all random, uh, and it very yeah, much um, cha- changes a person's worldview. Yeah, you're you're very right about that too, uh, because certainly uh, many Americans of the time, and even now, if they had had that kind of a brush with death would have um, you know, regarded it as a miracle. It might have caused them a sort of you know, renaissance in their personal faith in God or uh, a belief in the, you know, in the purpose of the universe. Uh, and Holmes uh, is much more of a skeptic. He begins life as a skeptic and continues to remain skeptical of just about everything uh, through his uh, you know, longer than 90-year life. And he does realize that if he had been looking in another direction when the bullet struck him, uh, he would not be around to tell the tale. And there's no way that he can examine that event and say that it makes sense. Um, and in Holmes, you have someone who spends his career trying to make sense of the world, uh, but continually coming to the conclusion that really it doesn't, but that we have to concoct ideas of sense and rationality if we're going to function as individuals and as members of a society. Now, two of the other characters that you write about, uh, Walt Whitman, Louisa May Alcott, also see the the random wreckage of war. Uh, they both work in hospitals, and and mm-hmm. they also see that who dies and who lives isn't related to who's a good person or a bad person. There's no justice uh, uh, right. taking place here. But they come to yeah. radically different conclusions. And, and again, when I wrote down one word, yeah. uh, the word I wrote was kindness, and then I, then I changed it to compassion. I think you used that uh, yourself mm-hmm. comparing them. Uh, where Holmes yeah. sees the world in terms of duty, they see it in terms of compassion. Why yeah. Why this different uh, outlook? Um, well, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say, you know, why they arrived at, um, at different conclusions other than to say that their experience of the war was one that did not take place on the front line, but rather took place in the, the realm of the hospital. Uh, and, uh, and as 
writers. Um, you know, Alcott is a, is a writer of uh, of novels, and Whitman is a, is a writer of poetry. Uh, they are people of acute sensitivity and and uh, a deep sense of of the value of human life. Uh, which is not to say that Holmes doesn't value human life, but for uh, for for Walt Whitman, uh, who is a man who spends his poetic career uh, celebrating. Um, beauty and sexuality and the uh, potential you know, uh, perfect state of, of humanity, uh, for him to pass through these hospitals and to see um, battered bodies, um, you know, you know, severed limbs, um, you know, people out of their minds with fever or driven mad by, by the, the, the horrors that they've seen on the battlefield, uh, Whitman has to shift the ground, I think, of his love for humankind. Because before the war, you, you, you know, go to a concordance of his poetry, and he uses the word perfect over and over again. And perfection to him you know, seems at that point to be you know, kind of a part of his um, you know, poetic mission and part of his idealization of, of humankind. Uh, and he reaches a point where he can no longer idealize, and so he ends up having to humanize. Uh, and his relation to the world and his relation to his fellow human beings uh, is, uh, is altered uh, in a way that you know, it's, it's more of an apotheosis. It's more of a, a sort of a rising up to a higher state of, of love. He kind of shifts, if you, if you know the Greek words, he moves from eros to agape. He moves from a sexualized love to uh, a love that is infused with charity. Um, and, and so that's kind of the, the, the arc that he travels. Uh, as far as Louisa May Alcott is concerned, uh, you know, she's... Did, did, actually, John, let me, let me jump in. If, let me jump in oh, if yeah, I could... Sure. Before we get to, to her, because we're going to take another short break, but okay. I, I want to ask you, and, and you can answer this in terms of Alcott, when we come back, I used the phrase apotheosis, the word apotheosis a moment ago, and to some extent, rebirth or resurrection or apotheosis uh, is another theme that we see here. Coming out of this horror at Fredericksburg, all these characters, uh, other than Fuller, who was killed there, are, are transformed often in positive ways, uh, which seems you know, hard to, to connect with what happened at Fredericksburg. So that's a question to ponder over the next uh, minute while we take a short break. Come back. We're talking today with John Madison, author of A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? 
If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John Madison, author of A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. And listeners, if you... You've read about the Battle of Fredericksburg, and if you're thinking, I don't need another battle book, be assured this is not it. Uh, And I found I was turning every page because uh, I've heard of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and and, uh, Louisa May Alcott and Walt Whitman and read some of their stuff. But on every page, I was learning something new about how the Civil War in general and Fredericksburg in particular influenced them and changed their lives and how – those changes reflect a larger understanding of the Civil War that we all have. John, we left with the question about this idea of an apotheosis. You said that Whitman's poetry changes uh, after he goes to uh, serve in Civil War hospitals, which he does to look for his brother uh, yeah. after the Battle of Fredericksburg. What about uh, uh, what about this idea? Can can war be this this re- regenerative force? Uh, yeah, it, it requires a, a kind of appreciation of paradox to see it that way. Uh, but I think that uh, you and I and probably a lot of your listeners uh, will resonate with the idea that sometimes the most uh, challenging at the, and you know, at the moment most frightening and, and difficult passage of your life uh, can be the one that shapes you. Uh, and uh, and you know, for some people, um, you know, it, it breaks them, but for others, uh, it you know, leads to you know inner reflection. It leads to uh, a reordering of one's thought about the world, and uh, and you know a strong person uh, is is capable of learning lessons and and of absorbing new understandings of uh, of what life can be, of what their art can accomplish, and so forth. And of course, this is very true of Louisa May Alcott, who uh, before. Um, she becomes a nurse, and she becomes a nurse just days before um, the casualties start to arrive from the field at Fredericksburg. Uh, up to that point in her career, she is a writer of uh, thrilling, what she calls blood and thunder tales for the penny press, these bodice rippers that are often set in Renaissance Italy and Castilian Spain and so forth, places she's never been, has no real feel for whatsoever. Uh, all she really has is a vivid imagination and uh, and a sort of driving, um, compelling narrative style. But then she gets to the hospitals, 
And she realizes, as she's writing letters home to her family, that, uh, oh my goodness, the best stories to be told often are the stories that we know and experience from the inside. And uh, there are a number of reasons why this, why what I'm about to say is true. But I'm utterly confident that Louisa Mayorka would never have written Little Women had it not been for her uh, you know, nursing stint uh, in, in Georgetown. And that stint nearly kills her. She develops typhoid pneumonia, and she's brought home raving and, uh, and really at, uh, at death's door. Uh, but she does recover. She does experience this kind of both physical and emotional and intellectual uh, rebirth uh, and uh, has been, you know, kind of opened up to this this more realistic idea of how one can write. And uh, and so it's really pretty fair to say that, uh, that Joe March and her sisters were born in a hospital in Georgetown in December of 1862. And did you say, and this is not a book of literary criticism, but you mentioned uh, in passing that uh, Joe March and her sisters are the precedence for uh, the girls of the facts of life or sex in the city or any of the uh, uh, stories we have of, of uh, companionate women in the, in American literature and culture today. Uh, and yeah, it, 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 it is a book where people still read for fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Little Women is uh, is certainly the oldest uh, book in the American canon of children's fiction, uh, and probably the second oldest in the Anglo-American tradition, because Alice in Wonderland is, or Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, I should say, uh, is only a couple of years older than uh, than, than Little Women. Uh, so Louisa May Alcott really finds herself at the root of uh, an American tradition of writing, uh, at the root of you know this. Um, Durable trope of the the four young women. Um, in her case, it's sisters, but of, you have mentioned Sex in the City, Sex of Life, etc. Uh, it's uh, it seems to be one of those storylines that is just kind of inexhaustible. Uh, and we were talking about you were mentioning also uh, the idea of rebirth as mm-hmm. um, as, as a, a recurrent theme in in my book. I'm wondering if you'd like me to say just a couple more words about that. Uh, sure, please do. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, I have a, a friend who's also a biographer. Her name is Stacy Schiff, and your, your readers may know it from, from her book on Cleopatra and some other great things that she's done. But she's very fond of saying that a biographer is a novelist under oath. Okay, We are here to tell interesting, compelling stories that have relevance to our readers in ways that they never possibly imagined. Um, but the one restriction on it is that we have to tell the truth. Everything has to have a footprint. Uh, but the knowledge that you're doing a kind of a novelistic task, um, you know, for me, you know, took me back to um, um, actually this, this wonderful book that I have in front of me right here. It's called The Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker. And those plots include Rags to Riches, Overcoming the Monster, Voyage and Return, Rebirth is yet another one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that an attentive reader uh, who also has an appreciation for novelistic craft is going to find in my book that it is, in fact, kind of a novel under oath, that it deals with voyage and return, rebirth, overcoming the monster, and backs to riches, and so on. So that's not really accidental that, uh, that you know, those uh, through lines are, are present in my work. Then I wonder, how does 
the Callan John Pelham fit into this? He seems the odd man out in that uh, the others all achieve some redemption uh, or rebirth. Their lives are transformed. Fuller is killed in, in his moment. Uh, the other three go on to develop new ways of understanding life. Uh, Pelham seems no more... Uh, not the least bit transformed by anything that happens to him at any time, except for a shell fragment in the head uh, transforms him at the at, at Kelly's Ford in 1863. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, no, so so he's the odd man out. Yeah, well, he's also the only one of the five who never knew Emerson. So. So that's kind of interesting as well. Uh, And he is the one Southerner, and he's also the only professional soldier. Uh, So in all of those ways, uh, you're right. He's the answer to the, uh, you know, the question, you know, which one of these things is not like the others. Uh, In terms of of his redemption, uh, as we know, the question of redemption is is more difficult, I believe, for someone who fought on the side of of the Confederacy, um, because they they are on the side of slavery, uh, and and they are on a side of history that has been, you know, repudiated, and very fiercely so uh, in our own time. But what redeems Pelham for me uh, is, you know, is kind of everything but uh, his uh, political uh, and you know, affiliation. Uh, in that, uh, he is strikingly handsome, dashing, athletic, uh, consummately skilled as uh, you know, preternaturally skilled as an artillery tactician. Uh, he is this kind of golden figure, and and there were times when I was writing about him that, um, that the image that came to my mind was actually one of, of a kind of a Jay Gatsby. Um, and, uh, and you'll remember the scenes that take place at the, at the Bower uh, between Antietam and Fredericksburg, uh, which have this kind of you know, soft, sweet, romantic gloss to them. Uh, and, uh, and there is this kind of aura that surrounds Pelham precisely because he doesn't live long enough to experience defeat or to experience the, uh, you know, the, in its fullness, the complex fate in, into which he's been injected as a young man from Alabama at this moment when he can absolutely play out and explore his military genius, but, uh, but in a way that we now perceive as being hopelessly morally fraught. Um, so, um, so yep, I, I hope that kind of explains my my general thought about uh, John Pelham. It, it it does, and and it fits certainly. He plays a, a, a critical role at Fredericksburg. He fits in. I mean, Fredericksburg is is central uh, to it is is the connective event here that ties the book together. But it's interesting how some people. Uh, like Holmes, Holmes is not there, or at least he can't go into battle with his regiment because he's ill, uh, which affects his feelings of duty. Let me ask a, a yeah. question as we approach the last few minutes. Uh, used to be a standard on this program, the Civil War time machine question, uh, Civil War talk <laughs> radio time machine question. If you could, and and it's just made to order for this book, if you could go back for 30 minutes in time, talk to anyone in the past, uh, and then return to the present safely, uh, and in this case, I'll limit it to your five protagonists. Which of these five 
would you most want to talk to, or which of these five do you most admire, if you, if you want to phrase it that way? Okay, well, the, the two I would most want to talk to, I'd be very torn, uh, would be mm-hmm. Holmes, uh, because uh, Holmes, um, you know, perhaps alone among the people I've written about, although Margaret Fuller comes close, Holmes was an authentic genius. Uh, he was a man of just extraordinary mental capacity. And I would be delighted and fascinated to pick his brain about his worldview, uh, because I regard him as being almost uh, a precursor of 20th century existentialism in a way, in the way that he observes the world as being absurd and without clear moral uh, direction. Uh, and in the way that he finds means of dealing with that um, that unexpected void. Um, I would also love to talk with Pelham precisely because he is, to me, such an enigma. Um, you know, I, as a biographer, you always you know, want the, the, the document that you can't have. And, uh, and Pelham's Civil War era letters. We have his letters from West Point, but his uh, Civil War letters have vanished. And so almost everything that we know about uh, John Pelham from about you know, July of 1861 on uh, is things that are reported by other people. So he is regarded uh, from the outside, and often the accounts are written after his death, so there's this uh, impulse toward hagiography uh, among his, uh, you know, his Southern commentators. So he's the hardest one to get at. Um, and, um, you know, given the fact that he and I you know, would have, you know, terrible you know, political disagreements, and he would probably punch me in the nose, uh, I would nevertheless really, really want to know what was going on inside his mind uh, during many of the events that I narrate. Well, it, it would be, uh, I guess that's always the thing we want, is more more access to the past. How could we know more about these people? Well, are you working on another... And if I may uh, interrupt, if I may oh, go ahead. for a second yes, there. please. Uh, but, the other part of your question was who do I most yes. admire, and that's actually a different answer because the one oh, I good. admire most is Louise May Alcott. Um, okay. You know, in that she was able to rise up from poverty, that she was able to maintain this tremendous devotion to her family, uh, and uh, and was to you know, you know achieve this dream of of rags to riches uh, in in a way that uh, that really is is quite inspiring. Uh, and I love the stories of underdogs, and uh, and and so to me, you know, she's she's the one of this uh, of this quintet whom I most love and admire. Um, although you know, some of the other conversations might have been richer. I would say the most emotionally affecting book uh, moment in the book for me, and it'd be different for every reader, is when uh, Alcott is is ill in Washington, uh, nearly dead in the hospital where she's been working, uh, worked herself almost to death, but refuses to go home back to Massachusetts because it's her duty, and her father comes down to see her, and it's her father she's been trying to live up to all these years. And he says, come home, and she realizes she's done her duty to him, and it's okay. And as a father of daughters, that was uh, of, of, of self-driving daughters, I will say, uh, that, that moment really, uh, that, was, that was the most affecting by far. Uh, 
Sadly, we are out of time. Uh, I could talk about this book okay. with you uh, for two more hours. I really enjoyed it. Lis- listeners, you will not be sorry when you read uh, A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. We've been talking to its author, John Madison. John, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio tonight. It's been both a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so very much, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 